it turns people, that is, not into agents, not into producers, not into heroic actors, but instead into sort of matrix-like batteries for the digital economy. I don't want to live in that world. I'm Tor Bear from Enigma, and welcome to Decentralize This. Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of Decentralize This presented by Enigma. I am Tor Bear. I'm the head of growth for Enigma, and today's guest is the fabulous Glenn Weil. Glenn is a political economist and a social technologist who's focused on how new technologies and markets can create a more equal and cooperative society. He's best known in the blockchain space for his work with Vitalik on their paper, Liberal Radicalism, which was co-authored with Zoe Hitzig, and he's deeply passionate about building a global movement for real change. Glenn is also the co-author of Radical Markets, and he teaches at Princeton University, and he's a principal researcher at Microsoft in New York. On this episode, Glenn discusses what liberal radicalism represents, how mechanisms like quadratic voting and harbinger taxes can be applied at small scale and globally, why we should treat data as a product of labor, and why we must pursue and value social innovation as much as technological innovation. I could listen to Glenn speak about his work for hours. Unfortunately, this conversation is just limited to about 50 minutes. Glenn and I don't agree on everything, but I do believe we agree on the most important thing, that the potential of decentralized technologies is limitless. And for decentralization to have real significance, a social movement is required. So I hope our conversation inspires you to contribute to building a more decentralized future in your own way. And without any further introduction, here is Glenn Weil. Glenn, thank you so much for appearing on Decentralize This. It is my absolute pleasure to be hosting you today. Great to be here. First, we start every episode pretty much the same way. Who is Glenn Weil professionally, personally, just who are you? I was trained as an economist, but uh, these days... I think of myself more as a political economist and a social technologist. I'm working on trying to both build solutions and test them and you know, think and uh, organize around ways that we could have a society that's both more free market but also much more egalitarian and use that to bridge some of the political divides that I think are tearing our society apart. I work at Microsoft and at Princeton, and I'm the founder and chairman of a not-for-profit called Radical Exchange Foundation that's helping catalyze the community around these types of ideas. That's amazing. I cannot wait to talk about all those initiatives, especially Radical Exchange, and it seems like there's been a lot of momentum around that in particular. Uh, a lot of the people who are listening now to the podcast, because this tends to be our audience, might be more familiar with you uh, because of your paper on liberal radicalism that you co-authored with Vitalik as well as uh, Zoe Hitzig. I think that's how you pronounce her name. Right. Uh, but uh, maybe we can start there just because that's a good entry point for some people. What was that paper about and what made you want to write about it? And what made you particularly want to collaborate with Vitalik? The paper is about – there's a usual vision um, that's a critical part of really the philosophical thought of all of the West for the last several hundred years that I call liberalism. Many people within the blockchain community, including your uh, podcast name, call it decentralization. Hmm. It's the notion that we um, should seek to avoid concentrated, hierarchical, arbitrary power, um, and that we should seek to have a greater diversity decentralization um, of the sources of power. But the problem is often um, this idea, this liberal, as I would call it, idea, uh, ends up bleeding into a notion of individualism or isolation or opposition to any form of collective action or collective organization. Mm -hmm. um, 
and uh, Vitalik, Zoe and I really think that's a mistake. And that in fact, it's impossible to maintain decentralization without collective organization. That actually uh, every attempt to have a isolated individualistic society inevitably leads to some sort of totalitarianism. Um, and so instead, what we need is ways that do not impose or rely on historical or arbitrary authority to create collective organizations that emerge in a natural and economically efficient way from uh, people's needs and desires. And liberal radicalism is an attempt to solve that problem uh, using economic theory, but for these sort of deep philosophical ends. Yeah, I definitely wanted to start with the why, right? Because there's a lot of what's. There's a lot of things and, and mechanisms in particular that you've written about, including quadratic voting, uh, that are very much the the what, like the functions and mechanisms by which we can achieve some of these goals. But I really wanted to focus on this goal of of how we think about decentralizing power in the name of having a more you know just functional society. Uh, and, and I, you use different terminology, obviously, than I have. I, I've often referred to this as decentralization, and maybe this hasn't been a good enough term. I, we had Nathan Schneider on the podcast previously, and we talked about this term decentralization, and if it had any meaning, and if it did, what what we hoped that meaning would be. I think you've just done the best job we've had on the show of, of trying to define what it should mean, and, and you're using this term liberal radicalism, and you're acknowledging this tension between uh, you know allowing the individual to exist and flourish and celebrate the individual uh but not falling into these traps of tribalism and isolation so thank you for doing that i i think that how we talk about these things is just as valuable as as how we build um in particular, I, I want to ask you about a few things. I, so I mentioned quadratic voting. I also want to talk to you about this concept of data as labor that you've written about. Um, but just to hang on this notion for a second, I've seen you tweet something recently about the potential for individuals or groups to be made irrelevant, either by new technologies or by the over-concentration of power. Can you talk about this very real threat of, of irrelevancy? like what that would mean and why it's so dangerous and, and how you see some of your ideas in writing around this maybe contributing to a positive change in this area. I don't think that irrelevance is the worst thing. Uh, individuals die um, and social organizations can also become outmoded. Um, the nation state may well become outmoded. I think the threat is less that organizations' time passes. In fact, if anything, I think we should perhaps accelerate that process. The problem, however, is many technologies, as they wipe away the fabric of social organization of the past, often leave nothing in its place. They, they destroy the old. And they don't build up a new ecology of diverse organizations. You think in the 1950s, people had their bowling clubs, they had their labor unions, they had their political parties, they had their states, they had their families, um, they had their bookstores, they had all these institutions that meant that they weren't alone. And not only were they not alone, they were connected to others not through a single hegemonic central platform or nation state, but through a rich, dense network of different collective organizations, each which had some authority, none which had total authority over their lives. And I think that that's ultimately what makes us an individual. I think the vision of the individual as an island is wrong. I like to say individuals are not islands. They are crossroads mm -hmm. of different communities. And if we erase all those communities of which an individual is part, the individual is left naked in front of the power of a central network. Now, 
that doesn't mean we shouldn't allow those old things to die, but we need to build up new ones. Got it. Yeah, I, what, I, what I'm hearing from you is that it's not so much the threat that we'll lose our current institutions. It, it's more the threat that we won't have something good enough to put up in their place. And so I can tell that you're not an anarchist. And I would love for you to talk a little bit about what you think is an example of a future community that would benefit the individuals that exist at the crossroads of these communities. Like, wh where are we heading? What, what could we build? Let's assume for a moment we're able to break down some of the existing institutions and social practices that aren't working. What, what are you suggesting that we start working towards constructing in their place or, or how would we start to answer that question? Well, I think we need institutions that are adapted to the challenges that we actually face. You know, religions emerged to build social organization in particular contexts of an agricultural society. Nation states were adapted to industrialization. Today, the actual forms of collective organization that we need may be different. For example, um, there are many environmental features like rivers that cut across the borders of ethno-linguistically based nation states. These are not very well looked after by nation states as a form of organization because they end up conflicting over it. What if that river instead had its own entity associated with it? Um, or what if uh, communities of interest in particular open source projects had their entities associated with them. That's a different form of non-local organization. So I give one example of local non-nation state organization, another example of non-local, but still not global organization. It's just local to a non-physical uh, notion of local interest, right? And there could be organizations representing people speaking a particular language who might be scattered around the world. Um, so there are many relevant forms of organization. Cities are increasingly relevant because people want to be nearby each other. So there, there's all these forms of organization that are not lining up with the traditional imaginaries, the traditional visions that people have of the basis of an organization, but are extremely relevant today. I think you're raising a, a good point around like all the different types of uh, – some of these are borderless organizations and entities and some of them, as you're mentioning with cities, are – they do have borders. They're, they're just not necessarily how we've looked at organizations or, or maybe they're at a different scale than we've normally thought of uh, seeing uh, experimentation with new types of organizations, new types of mechanisms. You – I was very lucky – to listen in on the symposium that recently was in Chicago. Uh, we were lucky was, to have you there. Uh, it was a privilege, but but you and, and Eric Posner going over the book, uh, Radical Markets, that, that you co-authored. And I found it fascinating, and I really latched on to one thing that you said, uh, which near the end, which was radical technological innovation – is widely praised, accepted, celebrated in our culture, but radical social innovation is not. And when you're describing all of these things, like uh, with the example of the river or the example of cities or anything else, I, I keep thinking about, you know, how, how can we experiment and innovate uh, with, with those organizations, new types of community structures, new types of entities? I, I want, I want to ask you, like, what do you see as the most valuable types of like social experimentation that, that are going to help us answer some of these questions about what should these future institutions and organizations look like? Like we, ha we have to start finding those answers. I don't think we have them yet, but you've done so much great work trying to attack those questions. I'm just curious, like, how are you thinking about this? Something I look for in an experiment is its legibility. Um, when we design experiments uh, in social sciences, often the focus is on controlling for as many things as we can. And of course, that's important. But um, it's also important that the data that comes out is clear and comprehensible. 
and sheds light not just to social scientists, but to the public on the outcomes. So, you know, Simon de la Rivière, who's a wonderful participant in the radical exchange community and a blockchain leader as well, uh, proposed the idea of a million dollar homepage, which is one of these collaborative artworks where people own individual pixels and can choose their color. Um, but doing that under the Harberger tax, which is a proposal that we have that is intended to encourage property to be more dynamic. Yeah, I'd, lo I'd love and, for you to explain at some point on, on yeah, this yeah, podcast we'll, how those work. We'll, we'll, t we'll turn to that in a bit. But the notion is, you know, in the book we propose new, more flexible, more thoughtful notions of collective organization and ownership and so forth. And the nice thing about the million dollar homepage is that if you look at current million dollar homepages, the listeners can Google them, um, they're pretty chaotic and they're pretty awful works of art because there's no real effectual possibility of collective organization and buying up large chunks to repurpose it and so forth. So it, it, it's not very vibrant. Um, on the other hand, you know, just having a single artist do it all may not be desirable either. So the notion is if you use some of these mechanisms, you might actually be able to have a more effective artistic collaborative production. And if so, that will be incredibly legible to everyone. Everyone can just go and look at what capitalism looks like and the chaos that it creates and what it looks like under a radical markets design. So to me, that's, uh, that's one of the most interesting ones. And other things like that, video games, movies. I, I think experiments that can touch people are the most important kinds of experiments. I, I agree with you. And I, I myself have like a big emphasis as an artist, right? Wanting to express these things. And, and you're introducing this idea. It's like, yes, it's legible. Like we can, we can see the result of such an experiment. I'm, I'm always worried about how it's measured, right? Like, can we, can we really put a number on how much better this would be than another outcome? I'm, I'm assuming like there, there are other kinds of experiments and, and some of your work is getting at this is like, what is the measurable value to society of doing things differently? There's a lot of people who will only speak in terms of dollars and cents and they, and they are not very good at experimenting on things unless they think that it's going to be just like a better way to, to do things from, from a capital allocation standpoint. Are there, are there experiments that you're thinking of where it's like, we can just show, I, I mean, that there's a better outcome for society if we were to just structure things differently? Yeah. I mean, those have their value too. Uh, one way to make things legible is in dollars and cents. And I think uh, there's a number of commercial real estate developments and co-working spaces that I think are starting to experiment with things in, the, in that way. And I like that idea less because I am into dollars and cents in that way, but more because I think that if something succeeds in those terms, it, it, because of our capitalist society, it will grow. And as it grows, it will buy up other properties and bring them under the same principle. And others will, in order to compete, be forced to follow along. And through that process, you will organically eat capitalism from inside. Um, but I also believe in eating capitalism from outside by changing people's notions of legitimacy, which is what I think these artistic endeavors can do. I think that's a, a great way to put it. And something that came up recently on a podcast we did with uh, Luis Quende from Aragon, where he talked about building this parallel universe of decentralized autonomous organizations. And we talked about building bridges to the world as it stands today. If you only build in a vacuum, if you only build parallel universes, it's it's hard to say that you know, you're going to scale, that you're going to acquire enough resources from our current universe to provide the fuel for this new parallel universe that, you know, supposedly functions better and, and is better for individuals and communities. You know, we have to be constantly thinking about building these bridges to capitalism as it currently stands if we, if we want to be, you know, lighting the rocket uh, as opposed to just like 
building something that stands totally separate. I also think it's more observable if, if it's, if it makes sense to people, like if they, if they have something where it's easier to compare, like you can say this co-working space is successfully using some of these new mechanisms and succeeding and you have something to easily compare it to that's familiar, like another co-working space that's traditional. And you can easily say this one is outperforming. Like that, that's all I mean. Does that, does that make sense? Like as a way to think about like, maybe, maybe this isn't the best way to categorize experiments, but there's the kind that can be done within context and maybe outside of context. Yeah. I mean, look, I, in the end, all this, comes down to me again to ways of making things legible dollars and cents are legible artworks are legible uh, many other things are not legible mm -hmm. and when we talk about legibility we have to speak in the language that's already spoken by the rest of the population not in neologisms um, because otherwise the things we say can't be understood um, so we need to learn how to express the new language we want to see in the old language. Um, and through that, persuade others that it's worth the time to learn to speak as we do. I, I think that's very valuable and sums up a lot of what I try to do to varying degrees of success, at least in de defining the term decentralization. But I think what you're describing is so much more impactful, like making it tangible for people in a way that just goes beyond like trying to describe it properly in words letting them sort of experience uh, this change for themselves. So in the service of that, let's get tangible. Let's talk about some of these mechanisms that you've described. Let's talk first about quadratic voting and how as a mechanism, uh, people can see how it could be better than one person, one vote in terms of actually realizing the ideals of a democracy. In, in one, in, ter in terms of actually serving the people instead of like very large economic interests. Yeah. So we all take for granted the notion of one person, one vote. It's very ingrained in Western societies. But if you think about it, it's, it's really a in pretty incoherent idea and increasingly so. The notion that just if a majority of people says X, we should do X could very easily lead to 51% of people killing 49, 51% of the remaining killing the other 49%, et cetera, et cetera, until you're left with one dictator. Um, and people have long known this. It's, it's one of the oldest discussions around democracy. Um, and because it's so well known, uh, any successful society puts in huge numbers of kludges and corrections to try to get democracy to avoid going off the rails. In the United States, we use judges to enforce what they think are versions of the constitutional rights that were enshrined at some point to protect minorities from majorities. Uh, we have political parties that whose elites and you know make bargains, and we have businesses that we allow to lobby and manipulate our politics to avoid. Uh, you know, majorities that don't know anything about technical areas of policy doing things that are extremely destructive. But in the process, we lose democracy. We lose any sense of legitimacy. Yeah, let's get into that. So talk to me a little bit about the mechanics of quadratic voting, because there's there's other types of, of voting system, like preference voting and things like that. But quadratic voting, I, I think, is really interesting in its construction. So unlike other forms of voting, quadratic voting tries to actually take into account how important things are to people rather than just uh, their ranking of different alternatives or something like this. And the way that it does that is by giving every citizen an equal budget of what we call voice credits that they can spend in favor of or against the candidates and issues that are most important to them and that most affect their interests. And the cost uh, on those issues is quadratic in the uh, number of votes that they get. Uh, so the number of voice credits they have to pay is the square of the, the votes that they get. And that allows them, on the one hand, to express when things are particularly important to them, but on the other hand, uh, ensures that the uh, extremists won't put everything on one issue because it will become increasingly costly to do that. In, in particular, it actually gives people an incentive to vote 
precisely in proportion to how important the issue is to them, because they'll buy votes up to just the point where the next vote is worth it to them, given how much they care. And that cost is proportional to the number of votes they have under the quadratic function and only under that function. I've heard criticism of this mostly only from the perspective of you are somehow perverting the process of democracy by tying the number of votes somebody gets to how much they're willing to pay for the vote at all. Because we're so used to one person, one vote, meaning there, there's no reason or ability to buy more influence. I, and I'm sure you agree with this statement, that's not precisely true. It seems obvious that you actually can pay for influence. Uh, very obviously, at least in, in American democracy, even if it doesn't translate into your own vote, it does translate into the votes of others. So quadratic voting is, is meant to be a way to protect against those large interests. I'm just wondering, in what context do you think we should be experimenting with quadratic voting, given how difficult it might be to implement, let's say, in a political election in the US, in the short term anyway? Well, I think it can influence politics through the channels that you were referring to without it being directly used for the formalism of voting. Uh, political polls have huge effects on the positions candidates take, and quadratic voting is a natural basis for running a political poll on which issues are most important. And it's already being used in that way, and I think it will have a significant effect on the uh, politics in, in, in coming years through that route. And in fact, many political institutions get established first as informal procedures that inform decision makers and eventually get formalized. And I expect the same will be true of quadratic voting. I'm very much excited to see, as you're saying, like in the traditional political sphere, how this gets implemented. Have you seen it implemented? I guess now we're getting more into into my field, but in this blockchain space where people are trying to formalize so much in code and there's these issues of governance and decentralized organizations, do you think that quadratic voting has the potential to be implemented in these kinds of new decentralized systems as an experimental path or, or even as like the foundation for, for new types of uh, organizations or protocols? Yeah, so uh, I think that it, not only has the potential, I think it's already happening. Um, so, in fact, right now, um, there's a very interesting startup called XM Chain, which does import-export regulatory controls on, the block on a blockchain, on a permission chain, using um, the quadratic voting to elect blockmakers. So, that's a relatively narrow and simple application, but um, one with uh, some potential to show us how things work. Um, but more ambitiously, I think the future uh, of blockchains is probably not to be governed effectively by the principle of a majority of compute rules or a majority of stake rules, but instead by a quadratic voting system uh, where effectively influence over both validation and governance is tied to identities and then based both on stake and personhood by using the quadratic function. Amazing. And that, that question was cheating a little bit as I'm pretty familiar with XM Chain. They're one of our they're one of our launch partners at Enigma, and I'm really fascinated by what they're building and how they're how they're doing their modeling as well. I, I'm encouraged to see just how many people are taking these ideas and running with them. Another one being, um, as you mentioned before, Harbinger taxes. Uh, I believe there was just an experiment run actually uh, in the space that implemented Harbinger taxes. And I'm, I'm trying to remember the name of the game. Do you remember the name of the game? I think I think I saw you tweet about this as well. I just I just tweeted about it a few minutes ago. I need to go look up its name. <laughs> <laughs> but again, so so maybe you can explain uh, what harbinger taxes are or or how they're supposed to work. Because again, that's an example of how we're seeing it implemented in practice, at least in a experimental scale. It's called microverse. Microverse, right? The game, yeah. So the idea is that um, private property, absolute private property, where Something belongs to me and I keep it unless I agree to sell it 
is only one form of organization. There are many other ways that property regimes have been set up. So for example, the Harberger tax is that everyone has to announce the value that they have for their assets. They have to pay a tax based on that value and they have to stand ready to sell the asset to anyone willing to pay that value. Um, this system makes people pay for the costs imposed on others by your holding on to an asset in a bloody-minded way and refusing to sell it to anyone. Um, and at the same time, it gives you the freedom to determine the price at which you'd be willing to sell it, um, though you have to pay for the costs that that imposes on others. Um, this leads to much more dynamic economies in which assets turn over to their best uses much more easily. It raises a lot of revenue, which returns the value of production based on assets that largely comes from social context to the society that produces that. So it's both more fair, it's more efficient, it's more equal, it's a, a much better framework for thinking about ownership than is standard capitalism. So harbinger taxes, I mean, again, a, a really fascinating idea in principle uh, and a really interesting way of ensuring that people are are valuing their own property appropriately. Um, one other thing that I that you've written about that's really important to me personally, um, and, and something I asked about at the symposium to to some to some end uh, was this idea of data as labor, and this relates a lot to something I I think and talk a lot about, which is like data privacy. You know, what is the value of data? What is the value of data if we can protect it? What is the value of data if it's just sort of like ambiently produced and out there? I, I'm just fascinated by this concept and I feel like it's so poorly understood, mostly because data is so intangible and we have so much of it. But you've made really excellent points about how now data underpins everything that we do. It underpins so many of our largest companies it's it's a means by which governments can exert control and surveillance you know it it might be the, the most important thing uh certainly relative to how well it's understood and and you're suggesting that we treat it differently in terms of how we understand it maybe even as an economic concept so maybe talk a little bit about this principle of data as labor and why is it so important to to conceive of data that way? So labor is quite different from other assets. A lot of people have described data as the new oil. Labor is quite a different thing. So compare labor to oil. Um, oil is something where if you discover it, regardless of who you are, it's yours. And then you can just sell it and it becomes the property fully of whoever you sell it to and that's that labor is not that way at all you can't sell yourself into slavery you can sell the products of your labor but even there there's limits on how long you can work often people are represented by a union or some other collective organization that ensures that they have more fair terms against the concentrations of wealth and power that could hold down their wages. Um, so labor conjures up a different set of meanings and associations than does capital. Labor is also something very intimate. It is literally the use of your body. It's literally the use of your person. And I think in the digital world, it's quite literally becoming the case that our data is us that the digital representation of us and the digital representation may be all that matters at some point or much of what matters soon. It, it, there, there, we can't treat data as if it's just a commodity, as if it's just something that can be sold because that would involve effectively selling ourselves and everything we value as into slavery. So, what we need is an economic framework that on the one hand allows for the productive use of data, just as we have productively used labor, but does not allow for the enslaving, subjugation, or 
rampant exploitation of data. What does it mean if we start thinking about data in this way? Because you're right that this is the only way I've ever really seen it described in the press as the new oil as a commodity. And it's certainly the way that it's treated you know, by advertisers or by ad-supported platforms. What is this tangibly going to mean for individuals? And maybe what is it going to mean for the platforms that are relying on this data for, you know, when when they repackage that data into a product for advertisers, let's say, or for governments who rely on this data to understand their own citizens? Well, I think it's going to mean a number of things. First, it's going to mean a fundamental change to the distribution of the rewards. Right now, almost all the dollars in this economy flow to a tiny set of people in the largest platforms like Facebook and Google. Um, and in a world where data is treated as labor, probably 70% of the returns will actually go to the people who are creating that data. So it'll be made a huge economic difference. But it's not just going to hurt the platforms because they have to pay more to people. It will also benefit them because the current mode of working, you know, thinking about data assumes that people aren't agents, that if you pay them, nothing will change, that they're purely passive, that they're just doing whatever they want, and that anything of value they throw off is just a complete byproduct. It turns people, that is, not into agents, not into producers, not into heroic actors, but instead into sort of matrix-like batteries for the digital economy. I don't want to live in that world where everything is created by people being fooled into supplying things rather than people being active producers of the value that comes out. And I don't think it'll be a very productive world because people, when you actually pay them to do things, when you make them aware that they're contributing, make exceptional contributions, they're creative. That's the power of the human brain. And we're throwing that away in the current way that we're treating data. I have to agree with you. And I usually come at this problem from a different perspective. You're definitely coming at this problem from, you know, or at least I, I know you think about it in many different ways, but what you've just described is sort of like the the economic reasons. I, I just think about, you know, th- this human right. Uh, I associate privacy very strongly with, with data and personal data and like data sovereignty because I consider privacy being, you know, what makes our own data scarce. Privacy being what's going to allow people to ultimately keep control of the data that they're producing as individuals, which will allow them to then benefit when that data is used and consumed and when they produce more. Do you, how do you think about, you know, this element of privacy? Uh, when it comes to data as labor, or or maybe any of the other things we've discussed, but it's so deeply important to me, I, I have to assume that it's important to you. Yeah. So I actually think the word privacy is often misunderstood. And I actually prefer instead of privacy, the word intimacy. Hmm. And the reason is that there's no such thing as private information, if you literally mean it's private to me alone. And on the other hand, um, some notion of limits on the transmission of information is the most critical thing to preserving an independent sphere for humans to exist. Mm. Um, Every datum about me is a datum about someone other than me as well. My mother's maiden name is not even about me. It's about my mother. My date of birth, well, there are some other people there, not just me. (laughs) My first kiss involved someone other than myself. Um, All of these data are social. The problem is when they become global only, rather than living within the spheres of intimacy in which I choose to have them. And that is the fundamental issue. And, And the division between the private and the fully public I think is the fundamental problem that we're trying to deal with. This is what I talked about at the beginning. We have to understand that all of my data are shared with other people. And hopefully none of it is shared with all with one other person, or especially not that there is some global entity that sees all of it simultaneously. 
Yeah, you're 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 linking so strongly all of these ideas together. This idea of control linked to this idea of power and how power is, can be you know decentralized. Like I'm thinking about the parallels between how our data is networked to how our relationships are networked to how the economy is networked. It, it's clear that you know this idea of of a networked uh, existence is is it's only becoming stronger. You know, you, we talked a little bit about the risk of individuals as islands, but I feel like in our culture today, we're more hyper-connected than ever. We've just sort of changed the terms of some of these relationships and we've given up the meaning or the control of these relationships, maybe to the platforms on which those relationships are formed. And I'm not just talking about Facebook, but that's always the most tangible one in my mind. You know, when you... <laughs> Something went very wrong when we allowed for all of these social connections to be directly monetized and we kept none of the value for ourselves. Like that, that seemed to be the real inflection point for me. Again, I'll return to the point that I made up front. And I do think it all comes down to this isolation and hypercentralization paradoxically are the same thing. Um, if people are alone, they can't handle that. So they link themselves in to one overlord who keeps them from being completely isolated. If individuals are enmeshed in many diverse communities, they don't need some central totalitarian authority to keep them connected. And that is what we have to struggle for in our identity solutions, in the way we fund communities, like in liberal radicalism, in the way that we own assets, in the way that we vote. We need to be together with others, not everyone, not all equally, not the cosmopolitan totalitarian platform, but interlinked in complex, adaptive, rich, diverse, and evolving ways that allow us to be an individual precisely because of the diversity of communities that we lie at the intersection and crossroads of. I think that is so eloquently put. And now we're at the perfect part of the conversation to explore this last topic because we've talked about the why, you know, why this is also important. We've talked about some of the what, like the mechanisms we can use to start uh, attacking some of these problems and experimenting with some of these new solutions. Let's talk about the how. Let's talk about radical exchange, because this seems to be a relatively new movement, but one that's growing in influence, that's growing in visibility. What is it? Where do you think it's going? You know, at least in the short term, like it, it seems so new, but it seems to be based on these very old, old ideas around just like what, what society should be. Like people have been thinking about these issues at least since Greece. Let's so so what is it? Why why now and 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 what is it? You know, I think many people feel a sense of despair right now, especially if you're a liberal-minded person, if you're someone who believes in the types of principles we're talking about, you look at liberal democracies falling. You see what's happened in the United States. You see Britain on the edge. You see France on the edge. You see the government in Belgium where I just was have has fallen. Um the future of open societies with markets, with um, many sources of power seems a threat. It seems threatened by um, the centralization of these platforms. And it seems threatened by the reactions to that extreme inequality that come from the ethno-nationalists and from those who would have central socialist governments. And people are looking for an alternative that can really address the problems that we're facing in a liberal way. And I think for that reason, the ideas in this book have really struck a chord with people, people within the blockchain community, but also artists and antitrust experts and academics from all sorts of fields. And these folks are now organizing into a movement. We have I don't know, something like 60 or 70 chapters around the world now. 
Uh, you're actually helping lead one of them, Tor, I understand, in Chicago. Um, and uh, we have hundreds of startups. We talked about some of them around this space. All sorts of investment by big companies and startups and, and so forth. It's a really incredible response. Yeah, well, you went to an academic conference mm -hmm. with you know a dozen papers all thinking about these topics from law professors, historians. And I want to be clear, I'm not an academic. I've never self-identified as one, but just based on the ideas that were being discussed, it made me consider it for just a moment. Yeah, but you don't have to be an academic. What we need exactly. is people connecting to each other. You know, we need a community of technologists who wants to hear the academic ideas that can actually help make a difference. We need a community of academics that wants to engage with technologists. We need a community of activists that wants to be inspired by experiments to make near-term change. And we need artists to help us imagine these futures and to see the challenges. So all of that, all of that is going on right now in this movement. And it's so vibrant. And, you know, I have to tell you, I was sort of a nerdy academic myself for a good amount of time. And it's really a challenge for me trying to simultaneously interact with all these people to continue to generate ideas, to do all that at the same moment. But it makes me feel, in some ways, for the first time in my life, like a really complete human being, because I'm being forced to exercise all the capacities that we have, the capacities to think and the capacities to do and the capacities to feel. And um, I, I think that opportunity to feel and do all those things together with so many talented people who are shining because they're being offered the opportunity to be more complete people through these interactions. Uh, it's really the most exciting thing uh, that I've ever done. When I met with people in Chicago locally to discuss some of the opportunities with Radical Exchange, what I what I used to describe what I was feeling thinking about these concepts was I felt like this was a self-efficacy movement. Like this was a movement that was going to allow people to actually realize the parts of themselves that were either lying dormant and unused or just unexplored, that this was going to be an opportunity for people to feel as though not just that change was possible, but that it was possible for them personally to affect change. And I feel like maybe that's a big piece of what's been lost in, in what you're describing, like how, how platforms and how the centralization of power and wealth has, has really changed things for us, maybe especially in the last few decades. We've lost that sense of being able to affect change at all. I, I think that's really the purpose of everything that you're describing and what you're trying to do. And that is such a basic fundamental psychological need for humans that I can't see how the movement doesn't continue to grow uh, and rapidly. You know, when you feel alone and you even are successful and it all accrues to you and you're, you know, you get fame or money or whatever it is, I've, I've had that. I felt that it's not that satisfying. When you are part of a faceless totalitarian collective, there's no you. But when you are part of these communities and you feel the cross currents of all these different groups passing through you, I think that that is when you truly feel like a human. You feel the zeitgeist passing through you and you ride on it, you know, like, like riding a wave. Um, and you feel agency in change. And yet you also don't feel isolation in that agency. I think that's what it means to live what we've been talking about in this and through living it, bring it uh, into practice in the world. Because ultimately, it's only when people's conception of what a good life is changes that we'll have the world that we all want to 
uh, seek to build. I'm I'm very excited, you know, to see where this goes. To be even a small piece of it, I think you're describing a deeply human movement at a time in history where we deeply need one. And I think that a lot of people listening are going to be inspired by you to learn more about some of these mechanisms you've discussed to maybe run their own experiments. And especially within the blockchain space, I, I hope it inspires people to experiment with their own platforms and still keep uh, that end goal in mind, that end goal of allowing people to live at the connections of all these disparate communities and, and feel feel that humanity, feel as though they're being imbued with, with that humanity and, and feeling the power that comes from that. And just to be very concrete, um, there are so many things you can do. You can join a local chapter. You can start one. Reach out to me at glenn at radicalexchange.org. Ra- that's radical, lower, like, then the letter X and then change.org. And I'll put it in the podcast and, description so that people yeah, can copy paste. Yeah. And uh, check out the website, radicalexchange.org. But also, there's just so many things you can do as you want in a totally decentralized way. You can build artworks that speak to these things, write songs. Um, uh, start hack apps, start companies, um, build, uh, communities, do research, uh, put ideas out there that are, you know, I put up online, I I presented this toward the conference you're at about a hundred open questions I have that I desperately need people to answer. These ideas have opened something. I think they've given the right framework, but, um, they're so far from fully described. Um, and we need people to work them out and work out the philosophy and work out psychology. And, 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 and th- there's a chance here to really be part in whatever way you want to be part of um, something that can, can make the sort of world that we want. That's tremendously exciting. I'll put all the relevant links in the podcast description. People can follow up. They can learn about some of these questions. They can learn how they can start answering it themselves. They can learn about the conference that's upcoming. I believe that's in Detroit in March. Yep. Exciting. Yeah. Glenn, it was an absolute pleasure to talk with you. It's Same for me, Tor. It's so clear that there's so much to be done and you're doing great work at at least organizing the effort and the thought and also the language around what is impacting us as individuals, as workers. I think that I've never been more optimistic about where we're heading uh, as people. I think that with the with the right sort of frameworks around this, there's going to be all kinds of new types of experimentation just around the corner in the blockchain space and the decentralization space, but also in the more traditional world, hopefully within companies, traditional companies, hopefully within local communities. Uh, and I can't wait to see what happens. So Glenn, thank you for inspiring some of that. Thank you for inspiring me. And I hope we get to have another conversation soon. Looking forward to it. Take care, Tor.